Hey everyone, it is 6.30 Eastern, this is episode 20 versus Media Live. Uh, we're just doing something casual today. Uh, I just decided to do kind of an open topic, things that happen throughout the week, things are in the news, uh, anything you specifically want to go into as opposed to where I kind of set a topic and uh, we tried to stay focused and pithy and short. Um, happy Pride Month to all corporations who are forced to celebrate. I thought we would get that out of the way. Um, this, this is always a fun part of, the, uh, part of the year and stuff like that. I personally don't have anything against Pride, whatever, uh, but it is fun to kind of watch um, how every company or corporation or whatever is forced to fall in line or face the angry wrath of 20 follower Twitter accounts. So at this point, it's just kind of amusing. Um, I talked a little bit about that today on the podcast. I noted, like, uh, it's funny, like, when, like, Burger King turns all their wrappers to rainbow colors, and it's, we're, we're being inclusive, but we're also going to give you diabetes and kill you. Um, so I thought I would just get that one right out of the way. Um, before I jump in, we'll go for about an hour, um, probably a hard hour. Uh, before I jump in, I wanted to talk a little bit about reactions from last week's call-in. For those of you uh, on Twitter who saw when I posted last week's episode, and I, and I told people, and I tagged several journalists, including Dave Weigel, Wesley Laurie, Karen Tumulty, Chris Hayes, journalists who l- laughed and lampooned at the idea of a single-point entry for schools. And uh, one of the reasons I held that exercise last week is to show that. And so every single person who spoke last week uh, who had kids noted that their kid is a single point of entry school. Anyone who didn't have kids who was a teacher or administrator noted that their schools were single point of entry. And so when I put that out there, uh, I had several just kind of fun reactions and accounts going, no, you didn't, you liar. (laughs) And my mouth just like literally hit the fucking floor. Um, cause I'm like, yeah, just go listen to it. I mean, whatever. I don't spend too much time on it, but, um, I had accounts go from, I was flat out making it up to, uh, to screening calls. I was only taking calls that agreed with my premise. And that was a fun one because as anyone who has joined these or listened to them, I don't screen anybody. Uh, people queue up. Like right now, I'm looking at my my admin, and I see eight callers, and I see Stephen who uh, chimes in a lot, and I see Chad and Nick, and uh, I don't really see many beyond that. And I see Joe is back there. Joseph's back there. Faye, Chris, Johnny. So some familiar faces, but some new ones. Like uh, Nick, for instance, I think I've taken before because I recognize the pups, but I have no idea what Nick's going to say. He might come on and tell me to, like, go fuck my mother. I don't know. Um, but that was also a fun reaction from people who one don't understand the debate and two don't understand what Colin is. Um, just a- amazing, amazing reactions all around from from people uh, who don't want to admit that these things are already out there. And here I am proving it, and apparently I made it all up. So that was for those of you who didn't see that last week or were fortunate enough not to spend their days on a cesspool of Twitter. Um, that was that was one of the more mouth dropping reactions I've I've seen in recent memory to something. Um, I just said, "Here it is. Here's people talking." And yeah, I guess I staged it or I screened calls. Um, that was just that. And if you have reactions to that as well, any things on that? Um, a pretty big film opened over Memorial Day weekend, Maverick Top Gun. Uh, if you like that, you can go into that. Tell me if you saw it, what you thought about it. We can also, as I noted on my podcast, talked about the politics around Top Gun. And 
I had said originally I wasn't going to see this film as, as cool as it looked. And, you know, as much as like Tom Cruise put more effort into a salute and a fighter pilot cockpit than anything I've ever done in my life, I just was like, uh, if it was true that they had replaced the Taiwan patch on Maverick's jacket with, you know, to appease China, I was going to sit it out. I'm like, that's just not worth it. You get, that's not going to stop the box office, but it's just my own little way of being like, I'm, I'm not going to participate in this. And, and as it turned out, they removed the patch, the Taiwan flag from Maverick's jacket to appease Tennyson Media, who's China state run media. And, uh, who was one of the financiers on the film or one of the, we were trying to get financing for this film to open it in China. Well, when Tennis saw the script and saw the footage of Maverick, they backed out of financing it in China. And so the studio and, and I guess Cruz put the Taiwan flag back on the jacket and that caused a little bit of an uproar over in China. It's the first time that I can think of where a studio or a film that tried to appease China you know, reneged on it, and now they still made a mad, and Tom Cruise is like, yeah, well, we still just made, you know, $300 billion, and we don't need China. And I hope that this is a lesson uh, for films and studios going forward, especially Marvel and Disney, that not only cater to China, but go out of their way to uh, insult the audiences here at home, as we've seen with the Obi-Wan Kenobi controversy. Uh, and as I said on my podcast, I don't know that if there's a single product out there right now that just despises its audience more than Disney. Um, they talk about fighting racism and stuff. And then as we all saw, and if you haven't seen, uh, they took John Boyega off the poster for The Force Awakens for the Chinese audiences. It's, it's perfection. Um, and so my hope is that perhaps maybe Marvel and other franchises in the future just go, you know what, we're going to make our film. And if China wants it, sure, we'll we'll talk about premiering over there. But are we going to uh, base casting decisions and creative decisions and writing and story plots to appease them? Well, no, we're not going to do that. Um, so if you have any thoughts on that, or Maverick, I'm kind of just throwing it out there. Uh, politically, uh, we have two pieces from Biden uh, in NBC and CNN, uh, basically two friendly outlets and, and a very friendly author, Edward, Edward Isaac DeVore, who's kind of Biden's unofficial biographer. Uh, DeVore was the first guy who got the break that Joe Biden was going to run for president, and he's kind of the first guy they go to. And we have two pieces that show extreme dysfunction happening inside this White House. And a lot of it has to do with uh, cleanup duty and uh, Biden not happy with uh, his administration coming out and cleaning up his statements like Putin cannot remain in power or uh, I'm the Second Amendment's not uh, permanent or it's it, it's any amendment can be amended, whatever. Uh, when he's speaking about gun control, where he came out and he basically said he was talking about banning nine millimeter. Um, I'm not the world's best gun expert, but I do know that if you're going to go and ban nine millimeter ammunition and firearms, you're talking about. Uh, handguns, not just AR-15s. So we have issues with this White House where Biden will go out and gaff his way out. And for those of you who've paid attention to politics for 40 years that Joe Biden's been in Washington, you know he's just a notorious gaff machine. It's been his built-in reputation for all of that time. And it's one thing when he's just kind of goofy Joe the senator or goofy Joe the VP. Well, he's the, he's the president now and his words matter. And so we have reports that he's not happy that the White House goes out and cleans up his mess or he has to be corralled by a fucking Easter bunny or what have you. And 
these two reports, both at NBC and, and CNN, don't paint flattering pictures of what's going on inside this White House, where stopping short of firing people, they don't seem to know what's going on. Uh, a perfect example of that yesterday was when uh, Karine Jean-Pierre had stated that to Ed O'Keefe, who surprisingly committed a journalism, uh, couldn't answer when this White House was first told about the formula shortage coming. Uh, it, the timeline of this is CNN warned about it in November. Uh, the Abbott factory shut down later that year. It, there was a recall initiated in February. And Joe Biden yesterday said that he had only found out about it in April. So you have the White House press secretary saying, we knew about this in February. Joe Biden saying, I knew about it in April. And somehow in that point of time, we don't know who the president of the United States is. And so there are these communication issues. And as we're being told by the press, it's it's always how these issues affect Joe Biden and not, say, the country. And it's always presented as the poor guy is just a victim of circumstance when generally we know that the policy is the problem. Joe Biden is the messaging problem. Um, it seems like the media is waking up to this fact and you don't get simultaneous pieces like this with off the record sources and anonymous sources uh, unless they are hitting the panic button for an upcoming election. We are quickly rounding the point of no return uh, for an electoral wipeout, which is coming in, we're doing July, August, September, October, six months now. So there's a lot of reasoning behind why NBC and CNN, which are red, you know, two friendly outlets running these pieces. Um, this admin just kind of careens from one crisis to the other without solving a prior one. We've seen this with the supply chain, the COVID tests, uh, Afghanistan, what, Putin, whatever it is. We just saw one today. And, if you, and it's fun to watch this stuff kind of unfold in real time. Uh, Biden had an HHS deputy uh, health, human health and sec, uh, services director today take the podium to talk about COVID because we're seeing a resurgence in COVID and we're seeing an uptick in hospitalizations even. And he was asked by a reporter, and I don't know who it was, if he can guarantee that schools will be open in the fall, fully open. And as soon as that question was asked, uh, Green Jean-Pierre jumped in and basically yanked the guy away from the podium and said, you have to go, it's time to go. Well, that simple reaction by her has now caused an uproar. Now you have people asking, uh, did you not clear this with Randy Weingarten? Uh, do the teachers unions need to issue a draft through the Department of Justice again? How, what are we doing? And you can't help but sit back and marvel that here you go. You just created another long-term issue. Kids are out of school now for about the next eh, two months, give or take. Um, except for those of you who have screw-ups in summer school. Um, don't worry about it. I'm a summer school kid too. And I turned out great. Um, but now you have a two-month issue that's going to arise that this administration literally just created today. You just saw a, a seed planted and you're going to see a wonderful blooming shit tree uh, that this administration now has to deal with because they can't answer simple questions. Of course, this, of course, the answer is yes. Schools will be open. Yes, we're beyond this point. Yes, whatever. And now you again, you have a press secretary who is unfocused, untrained, not qualified for the job. We know why she got the job. Great, um, but just today we saw another issue created. Um, lastly, I guess if you guys want to go into Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. 
Um, whatever, as I've said on the podcast, I don't think you have to take a side. <laughs> I think they're probably both sociopathic, shitty human beings. And I don't think that we have to root for one or the other. Uh, they clearly did not need to be in a relationship with each other. And that's pretty much it. And this, of course, their, their marital issues and the, um, not being uh, housebroken, I guess, how, how should you put it? Uh, spilled over when Amber Heard took credit for an op-ed published in the Washington Post. We know that was ghostwritten by her or uh, by the ACLU attorneys for her because she gave them money. Well, that led to, obviously, the defamation case. So it's interesting to see you now have the Washington Post, who today amended the piece. They put up a note today. They didn't pull it. They just amended it. Um, which is interesting in and of itself, but you now have the Washington Post kind of embroiled in two defamation lawsuits in just the last couple of years. Obviously, Nicholas Sandman was one, and now you have them embroiled in this one. So it's going to be interesting to see if Amber Heard sues the Washington Post or if Johnny Depp sues the Washington Post now, now that there is kind of uh, a verdict of guilt on her part. And uh, again, that this is one of these things where, I don't know, um, it's 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 a credibility problem for our media. The other thing that we saw with Amber Heard uh, is our media pretty much jumped directly into her corner, regardless of the facts of the case. We saw uh, Vice Media especially jump in. We saw I think it was the Ringer say how the Amber Heard verdict uh, hurts black women. <laughs> um, we saw how this was a blow to credibility and victims, and then we had her attorney making the rounds on morning shows today. Uh, I don't know if Depp's attorneys were invited or not, but it, all I know is that it was her attorneys out front, seemingly to the sympathetic nods of uh, Gail King and Savannah Guthrie and others. And so you clearly see another narrative developing where it doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter what the jury saw. It doesn't matter uh, what the verdict was. It's uh, a, another another woman who is bullied into silence. Um, and we see this again with these kinds of cases where the media already has their agenda written out. They have the conclusion and it doesn't matter where the facts are, where these stories end. This goes along with mass shooters and how we see mass shootings reported. Uh, we see very different coverage from Buffalo to uh, Uvalde, Texas, to we saw Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is going to get flushed down the toilet very quickly. And uh, for those of you paying attention to that, you'll understand why. Um, it is them who create this kind of uh, dichotomy, and it's them who drive this wedge between the race matters in some cases, and in some cases it doesn't. And uh, you must always believe one sex in court cases and abuse cases and never believe the other. And this is, again, part of the giant credibility gap that's with our media, and as long as it continues, assholes like me will continue to have jobs. Um so just a few topics uh, to get you guys thinking about. You don't have to weigh in on any of those. Um, I would ask to keep it short because I'm going to do pretty much a hard cutoff at 745. And so I just want to try and get as many people in. Uh, so again, keep it short. Uh, keep it pithy, as they always say. And uh, I'm just going to jump in here. So I think I've ranted long enough. Steven, uh, one of my usuals. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no um, worries. Give me your thoughts on anything I laid out or just like I said, open topic AMA. Uh, I'll start off by saying you never actually hosted that call in last week. Um, I just thought that one reply that said, no, you didn't was hilarious. Um, I, like, but, I even uh, published it. And, like I, I put up the link and it's like, here, just go listen to it. Like, just there it is. Just listen. Even if you think I'm an asshole, just go. 
And uh, and then the other reaction, of course, was I screened my calls. I, I might start it. Like, if I start seeing normal people, I'm just going to kick these people out, you know? Um, yeah, that's another thing with the screening. I was, I'm pretty sure I was the first one last week, too. Um, I was trying to get in as quick as I could because my girlfriend was about to come over. But um, uh, I'll start off with uh, how the press has been framing all the controversies, like inflation and how Biden feels the pain. Um, there's been reports about an energy crisis coming, uh, in the West to the Midwest is about to have power outages in this hot summer. Um, so I, I'm waiting to see the headline that Biden knows how it is to lose electricity for a week. That will be climate change. Um, and I guess just another quick topic. Uh, he's, he left to Delaware today. Uh, I remember he used to tweet and make talking points about how many times Trump would golf while being president. He's He's been president for about like 80 months. I'm not sure on the exact number, but uh, I'm pretty sure if you want to just find the actual number of how many times he's went to Delaware, which has to be at least 40 weekends of his presidency, you just uh, search Biden in Delaware under Charlie Spearing's Twitter. Yeah, it's interesting how even somewhat unbiased journalists like Mark Knoller for CBS, you know, the big cuddly old badger looking dude. Uh, he kept a record of every time Trump went to Mar-a-Lago or Trump went golfing and Trump did it a lot. Like he went golfing every weekend, which I guess is fine, except Trump said he wouldn't do that. Um, there's a couple issues with Biden going to Delaware. It's, one is exactly what you said. It's, it's uh, the press hypocrisy and how they treat it. As Biden leaves for Delaware every Friday afternoon, he's there until Monday mornings. So it's effectively three days. So it's all of Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and all of Monday. And there's one issue that isn't raised with this is that the Secret Service does not keep records of who visits him in Delaware. Uh, and we do not have a curious press about this. Now, that's not to suggest that there's something nefarious that Joe Biden's beating, you know, with Burisma officials or or secret Russians or anything like that. But it's all right to kind of know this stuff. And if you recall, when Trump stopped keeping visitor logs for the White House, Jim Acosta almost had a conniption fit and chained himself to the White House fence. And so, again, you see a double standard with this stuff. You see a double double standard with the amount of times Biden's leaving. Yeah, he's taking a three-day weekend. We just had one of those. <laughs> okay, and, and they want us to believe that all the old man does is do his weird gate walk down the beach with Jill Biden in a mask when there's no one around even. And this is one of the issues I have with it is it it appears like he could possibly be skirting transparency laws. We don't know who he's meeting with. We don't know if he's meeting with donors, if he's meeting with foreign advisors or 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 anything. And we have a media who is absolutely uh, incapable of raising any level of curiosity around this stuff. Um, I personally don't care really if he goes to Delaware or not, other than, of course, the political optics of it. Uh, he kind of came out yesterday and said, sorry, there's nothing I can do about gas and there's nothing I can do about inflation. And I'm going to Delaware. <laughs> um, and the optics of it are also, you know, for him, we don't see him out golfing. He doesn't golf. Um, so he's not out. There aren't the actual photos of him out just being leisure while he has a 38 percent approval rating and people are siphoning gasoline out of their neighbor's cars. So there's all of this mystery around. He just flies to Delaware, and I guess he's gone for three days every weekend. And um, so oh, I think sorry. that that's, to me, the bigger issue. But I, I do agree that there's, of course, a level of hypocrisy here with how the press covers it. Um, I know it's like kind of joking about him not really running things, although 
I mean, every day we get another reason to believe that. But, is it really I mean, joking? Are we really joking about this? Are we really joking about this? Oh, no. No, not at all. But, I mean, like, what are the odds that, like, when he goes to Delaware, he's just not president and somebody else is actually pulling the yeah, strings? You, you, like, you think, he probably just goes there and sleeps and hangs with Jill. You think, you think Ron Klain or, or Susan Rice is just whistling down the halls of the White House and swiveling around in the Oval Office chair and or, ordering their ordering their sandwich or whatever? I could Maybe. I mean, I could see that. It feels like the plot of Dave a little bit where, you know, he's just like, shut up, show up to these events, uh, don't screw up, and we'll set the agenda. That's really, to me, kind of what it feels like. Um, so, yeah, I really wonder if, like, during the weekends, Ron Klain just rolls up and then, you know, uses the chairlift from the state, from the residence down to the Oval Office that they've probably installed, and then Ron Klain just kind of makes himself a, an Oval Office fire or swivels around or calls foreign leaders just for the hell of it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we joke about it, but Jesus Christ, look at look at the behavior that we see. And look at the miscommunication that is constantly happening inside this White House. As I noted, we just saw we just saw it yesterday, where Corinne Jean Pierre is like, "I don't." Ed, Ed O'Keefe says, "Who who was the first person to call the White House and when to say, hey, we might need your help on this?'" And she's like, "I don't have a timeline on that, but we were on it as soon as the recall happened, which was February." And then Joe Biden said yesterday he didn't know about it until April. So who is keeping this from him for two and a half to three months? Well, your first suspect is Prime Minister Klain. Your second suspect is probably domestic policy advisor Susan Rice. And you just go down the chain. And if you also notice what's interesting to me is I always said I thought Jen Psaki played an oversized role in this administration because of how obsessed they are with media coverage. And, and Edward Isaac DeVore goes into this. They have 70 people, 70 staffers that pay attention to digital online content. That's insane. Um, and if you notice, uh, Saki's been away, what, two weeks now? And you can see how the messaging has compiled and gotten worse. And that kind of just leads me to believe that I was probably onto something, that Jen Psaki was more than just a press secretary. I mean, she set, she set the communication message for this White House, even above Joe Biden. Uh, that's all I got to say. Thanks, Stephen, for taking me. Thanks, Stephen. Good to hear from you again. Nick? Don't tell me to go fuck my mother. I was just playing around. You're you're a little muted. Can you try hitting up your volume or I don't know, moving closer to film? Maybe try using speaker. Uh, no, but just go ahead. I'll just try to like glue my phone to my ear. Uh, right. That's they basically because the, the United States requires a, a COVID test upon entry. We're one of like the few major countries still doing this for some reason. <laughs> nice. Life finds a way. Um, were either were either of you symptomatic? When we had it. And so and just so just so I don't know if people can hear. Nick. So him and his wife were overseas, uh, caught COVID. They were there for three weeks and they could not get back into the country um, because of the current uh, state of needing a negative test. Uh, this is something that, again, Jean-Pierre had stumbled over when she was asked about it, that the United States is still one of the few countries that does this because we learned that vaccines don't stop transmission. Um, 
I would I would recommend people who uh, are interested in this go visit Alicia Smith's timeline. I think her handle is Alicia Smith nineteen on Twitter, and she pretty much focuses solely on this issue right now. And she's super smart on this. And it's it's we have no idea. And this is the other thing about with COVID tests or COVID possibly coming back in the fall for schools, why they panic and, you know, hit the panic button when it's like, so schools are going to be open, right? Um, but it's, Nick, did you, you, but you're back in the country basically because you had to forge a document. <laughs> yeah, we just, we took. Uh, I'll go ahead and, uh, and hopefully you're under a pseudonym for that. So just in case, you know, yes. Yes. DH, a, <laughs> DHS is listening, but whatever. Um, I mean, I'm impressed that you were, and they, and they were able to just take that. Like you guys went through the airport and were you having the, were you having the uh, nervous sweats do, during this while you're, uh, putting all of our lives in danger? Or they, or they know what a Photoshop PNG COVID test looks like. Right. So um, that's good. I mean, it sucks that that happened, but it's good that you uh, got creative and, and got and found a way back in. Um, there, there's just there's no there's no rhyme or reason to what they're doing anymore, and that's going to become more apparent when you know COVID kind of come back and comes back in the fall, and blue states go back to mask mandates and school lockdowns and uh, everything, and it's it's going to be such a cluster cuss. Um, and people, I think, underestimate that when they do that, what kind of effect that's going to have on the election? Um, because I think people are going, people are just going to say we're we're done with this. We're just done with going back to mandates. We're done with going back to masks, uh, which we just saw several studies come out recently that said masks didn't actually do anything to reduce transmission, like at all. So. Um, I guess it's good we're on a platform that allows us to traffic in this kind of dangerous uh, theorizing and, and disinformation. Uh, do you, Nick, do you have any finishing any finishing thoughts or anything on that? Well, on the, on the positive side, aligned. So. You guys were ready to divorce over over COVID and, and COVID tests, and now she's like ready to grab a flag and a musket, huh? That see, that's good. We'll take those. Um, uh, for those, for for anyone who had trouble hearing that, I can normalize the audio um, post episode, so it sh- should hopefully go on and amplify uh, Nick's story here. But you should go back and listen to it because this is—it's an insane problem that isn't getting enough attention. And the first time the White House was asked about it, again, uh, Jean Pierre just kind of said, "You know, we de- we defer to the experts in in, in masks," and uh, it was also just revealed that. Uh, the DOJ is challenging the uh, repeal of the ma- the federal mask mandate from the judge in Texas. So for some magical reason, Biden is doubling down and going through with that one. That's always fun. Joe, did you? I need to, I need to find out if Joe heard about the baby formula shortage before or after our hundred and thirty year old mummy president. Definitely before, yeah. Yeah, so I if mean, you found um, out about it in I think April, I made the when did you find out about it? Or when was it on your radar? It was on my radar literally the day after um, we came home from the hospital with our newborn. So that would have been May 2nd. And for anyone who didn't know, the first time uh, Karine Jean-Pierre said they were on top of this when the recall happened. So when the plant shut down and they issued the recall, which was February, uh, the first time there's any mention of this on the white house website in a press conference, I believe was May 9th. And now again, you have a timeline here that isn't lining up, which, you know, 
I guess if like a foreign embassy is attacked, they can get away with this. But this is, you know, like I said, an issue that hits literally everybody. And you have an administration who can't get their fucking story straight on who knew what, when, and they're absolutely uh, refusing to reveal uh, just basic details. Yeah. So before, before I go into uh, my main point today, um, I think the first caller, uh, Stephen, um, had mentioned a few things about Grandpa going back to Delaware. And I'm just going to say a couple quick words about Delaware because I live 15 minutes from the border there in southeastern Pennsylvania here. Oh, oh you're yeah. in Delaware. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there is one redeeming quality about the state of Delaware and that there's no sales tax. I've literally utilized the state's lack thereof sales tax a few times whenever I needed to upgrade a TV. It saved me about 115 to $120. I got my last OLED there. But aside from that, Delaware is literally the skit from Wayne's World where it's, imagine being whiffed away to Delaware. Hi, I'm in Delaware. It's flat, it's boring, and the only thing it's ever produced is our current mummy president. So... With with that being said, um, Stephen, one one thing I did want to um, bring up tonight, um, kind of similar to the the things that have been going on with like corporate wokeness and whatnot. Um, so I noticed that um, Sony had just wrapped up their state of play uh, just now, which is basically their showcase of new and upcoming games on the PlayStation. And it uh, reminded me, um, I'm not sure if you had touched upon or gone into detail, but did you see the story from a couple weeks ago where Sony uh, PlayStation president Jim Ryan was um, called out in a few outlets? I think Bloomberg was the leading one about uh, his statement on uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, I know I know about the fact that he said uh, I know the base. He basically said, "We're not going to comment on this or whatever." He was he was pushed to comment on it, and he was just like, "You know, it's not what we do." And then, of course, he ended up being forced or shamed into doing offering a donation to Planned Parenthood or a group like it or Narwhal or, or one of these groups. Yeah, yeah. So basically, what had happened was, um, uh, so after the um, the leaked um, draft opinion had dropped what had happened was he had um sent an email to basically all of um sony staff and said what amounted to now the key here is that the full email has not been released so we don't know the full context of it we only know certain parts that were taken out and very likely were taken out of context he literally said in the email you know we um at sony we have you know, tens of millions of customers of players around the world who have a very diverse um, set of opinions on the issue of abortion. You know, we just basically ask that you respect one another's opinions, respect your your differences. Um, and this was leaked by um, Jason Schreier at Bloomberg, who basically in the video game industry is kind of the the Aaron Rupar slash K file of video game journalists. He's always one with these scoops. And um, it's funny because, you know, you were mentioning with uh, star Wars, how star Wars is one franchise that there's no other franchise that hates its fan base as much as star Wars does. It's kind of similar with games journalism where games journalists seem to absolutely fucking hate video games and everything surrounding them. 
which is why you get stories like this, which literally the way it was framed was this line from this memo that um, Jim Ryan had sent out. And then it included like within the same email, a follow-up about something about dogs and cats and how it's like a metaphor for us to all get along. And then what he did, what Jason Trier did in this story was he said, some employees are very upset. And he had made it sound as though this was, you know, just throughout the company, you had absolute shockwaves going on. Um, and yeah, you're right. It had um, uh, Insomniac Games, <clears throat> who uh, Sony owns. They had, um, I think, donated about $50,000 to Planned Parenthood following the release of this memo. And Sony was just like, okay, fine, we'll match it. And and that was basically the end of that. But it just, um, it, it just goes to show you just like the lengths to which, you know, this, this corporate activism um, is encouraged by these types of journalists. And um, I definitely think that Ryan's whole attitude, you could, I think, draw a pretty straight line from um, DeSantis versus Disney and his initial statement, again, which I want to emphasize, we don't know the full context of this statement. In very, in all likelihood, it's a mountain being made out of a molehill. But I think that the tone that he took is very likely a result of that DeSantis versus Disney spat. Yeah, and we've seen, obviously, a couple more of these things happen. Um, National League Baseball, is kind of, I know we have the, the Giants manager who said he's not going to walk out for the anthem, except baseball, you know, Major League Baseball's kind of staying out of this stuff. Um, and somebody, a few people on Twitter noticed the the lack of pride support in logos changing or headers on Twitter or whatever, and what that could mean for, you know, where, where they are in the sense of, you know, is this worth it or uh, do we actually feel like there's a cultural blowback happening? Uh, is the pendulum actually swinging back? Um, we also saw this, uh, and I don't know if this is the same reporter, but the guy for the Washington Post reached out to 20 video game companies, uh, demanding, and I think this was over Roe v. Wade as well. I could be wrong. Um, but he was basically demanding they take a stance on, and they hadn't spoken out against, um, uh, the appeal for Roe v. Wade or whatever. And this is just, this is the only fucking playbook they have right now because they can't, they can't stop, you know, a Florida law because it's, it's a Republican legislature, Republican governor. So anything that gets proposed, they're going to, they're probably going to sign. Um, so you have the, you have what the media says, we're, we're going to get corporations involved to come in and, and put pressure on because they might leave the state or they have LGBTQ employees that might feel unsafe now. And what you're seeing is, is a few companies just go, you know, we we can either tell the Washington Post and no comment and fuck off and live with a, a day or two of a story online which is, you know, um, Miller Textile Plant refuses to weigh in on the indigenous properties of the land it's being built on or whatever. And Washington Post is going to go write their story and it'll, and it'll go on Twitter and uh, it'll be up there for a day. Or these companies learn that if we do weigh in on this, we now have a three and a half to four week PR headache because the other side is pushing back. And so 
I, I, that's kind of what it looks like, what you're seeing with a lot of this stuff. Um, and, and I said on, again on the podcast today with, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with companies issuing, you know, pride declarations. I think some of it's funny. We saw that like the Milwaukee Brewers are going to have a drag night and I'm kind of like, as long as it's the players, you know, I mean, get the players to do it. And, you know, at the alpha betas did it. Um, I think there's worse things in this world than co- companies changing their logo to rainbow. I mean, ultimately who cares? Um, but as more and more of this kind of, uh, and I've said this, it, it, gender ideology is focused on y- extremely young people. That's going to turn off a lot of moderates, even on this kind of corporate wokeism uh, that we see happening. And that's, you know, that's why I said, to, you know, happy Pride Month to every corporation forced to celebrate. Um, and so it, it certainly looks like there's a pendulum swing on the way back. Uh, that says, you know what, we're not going to cater to a point fifth of a percent of employees in this company. Today, we just saw Amazon. Uh, I guess trans employees at Amazon laid on the ground outside the Seattle headquarters and covered themselves in a trans flag in a die-in because they still are unhappy that their company is selling books that they don't approve of. The way the Washington Post, above all, framed the story was very much like that. We didn't hear about book banning. We didn't hear about, you know, people doing that. It was very much framed as these books are harmful and hurtful and they're going to they're going to put trans lives in danger. And I think there comes a point when even just the norm, you know, the normie paying attention to this stuff just tunes it out. They're just like, give me a break, like grow up. Um, Like, I think it's like Abigail Schreier's book was even hidden on Amazon for a while. And I saw a couple of examples of Mein Kampf. Like these people are fine with Mein Kampf being sold on Amazon. Um, But, you know, you can't sell a book that talks about the actual harm of possible puberty blockers have. Uh, Deborah So is one of these authors. That's great. And I've talked to her in the past. Um, So it certainly feels like there's a possible pendulum swing on this. But again, Video game companies, I think, you're, you know, Neon Taster talks around a lot about this, about just how much video game journalists seem to just hate the products. They just absolute and they, it doesn't matter if it's they, they play it for two minutes and then they write a review hating it or it's the character designs. We saw that with Anita Sarkeesian, obviously, in Gamergate and Anita Sarkeesian was put on the unofficial board of Twitter. Um me personally, I don't I don't play video games enough to read anything about them. If I play a game, it's just I, I buy it and I play it and I, then I put it down. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally hear you on that front. And um, and just one final thought on it, um, you know, with with video game journalists and with the video game industry writ large, um, a lot of the people that work for like, you know, the various video game publications, IGN, Kotaku, um, GameSpot, etc. Um, a lot of the people that work there are, I get the impression that they've never actually spoken to anyone right of center in their life. There's literally one person in the video games, um, I don't even want to say industry, but just like that walks among those circles that is remotely right of center that I know of. And um, his name's Colin Moriarty. Um, and he used to work for IGN. And he actually has uh, the largest gaming podcast um, on Patreon. Um, and and he has talked about, like, repeatedly of just how he was, when he was working at IGN, how he was the only conservative that, like, any of these guys ever knew. And when you look at, like, where they're located, you know, a lot of them are based in California, like Santa Monica, um, you know, on the West Coast and everything. And you kind of figure to yourself, well, yeah, I mean, that's the 
culture that they're entrenched in. So, of course, they're never going to hear an opposing point of view. So um, it's just interesting how that kind of just bleeds over, despite the fact that, you know, there are millions and millions of people across the world that do play games. And, oh, yeah, Sony being a Japanese-based company probably did not want to comment on the abortion issue within the United States because Japan's abortion laws are a hell of a lot more restrictive than here in the States. Um, so that's pretty much all I got. Yeah. I thought it the other, the last thing I'll just, and I'll move on to Joseph is uh, one of the things I liked about from software when Elden Ring came out and people were talking about uh, it, just how it's how hard it is. Like the people just are talk, like people are complaining. There's journalists complaining that there's not, you know, a quest book or and it's too hard and they should make versions that are easier. And the head of From Software, who's I think he's a Japanese guy, just said, yeah, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You know, we make our games challenging for a reason. <laughs> he just told him to just piss off. Um, so that that was just another fun thing. Yeah, that the video game journalism world and that stuff is just that's all alien to me. I cannot imagine caring, um, I, I guess, to the point where I don't even know who many of these people are. Um, I do know that everything is compared to Gamergate. Um, Neon Taster has a great thread running about how everything gets compared to Gamergate. Uh, Joseph, open topic. Any thoughts you have on anything that I laid out or, or anything that's on your mind? Um, I think one of my topics is uh, do you think about reconsidering, you know, rewatching sort of like, I don't know about rewatching, but like just checking out like the new season of Stranger Things. Uh, I gave up on Stranger Things about two episodes into the last season. I may go back and watch it. I don't know. Uh, I love I loved the first season. I thought it was pitch perfect. I liked it. It was more horror-based. Um, I thought, like, just the nostalgia was handled well. You just the kids on bikes. But I also, I mean, that's when I grew up. So I was like, yeah, this is this is what we did. We, like, rode around on our bikes in the woods and shit and, and looked for mysterious crap. Um, season two, I thought, was acceptable. I was like, yeah, okay, they're good or whatever. Uh, season three, I just got annoyed with it. Like three episodes in where they turned it, just everything into like a Scooby-Doo adventure. Like, let's see, let's pair up Steve and Dustin and let's pair up these two and let's pair these two up. Game of Thrones did a lot of that also in the final seasons. It was just, who can we pair up together? That's, that's different and awkward. Um, and, and when I can see the writing, like when I can see the writer's room on the screen and mind you, I, I have a little bit of a screenwriting background, not, not great, but in a little bit of a Hollywood industry background. So I, I pay attention to these things in maybe a more cynical way than most people do. But like when I can see the writer's room happening on the screen, I almost instantly tune out. Um, and there was just to me so much winking at the camera. Like we're not really in danger now, or, you know, it's just kind of funny, haha, the nostalgia stuff we're doing. Uh, so I, I tuned it out. Um, and I, and I, I haven't really planned to go watch season four. I, I have a piece coming to spectator tomorrow, I think, um, about the fact that we saw two mass shootings in two weeks. And then the two most talked about series that are going on right now, which is Obi-Wan Kenobi and stranger things, both open with like, a classroom death. <laughs> so you have, you have the, the stra- opening of stranger, stranger things, which I read about uh, it, it, spoiler. It opens with a bunch of dead kids. I won't say how or why, but it opens with a bunch of dead kids all laying down, smothered and, you know, covered in blood. And then Kenobi opens with uh, a flashback to the stormtroopers on the Jedi temple, killing the younglings. And of course the ironic thing of that scene is the teacher is armed. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, I think there was also a thing when I was watching, like, the day the Stranger Things season came out was that, I put a disclaimer, is that, like, this was filmed really, this was filmed, like, before the Abaldi shooting, and it was kind of like, you know, please be aware of this, and, you know, they give condolences to the, to the families or whatever, you Baldi, and so... I thought that was kind of interesting, but it was also like kind of weird at the same time. But then, like when you kind of make the connection, like yeah, because I know the opening scene you're talking about, it's like whoa, what the fuck? What's that kind of? What's that kind of? What's yeah, kind of, like, and, I mean the the point I kind of make in the pieces. I, I personally don't care. I don't care if uh, I, I don't care if there's shows that have mass shootings. I don't care. I, I don't think that that has a play uh, on culture. I don't think that that's to blame, I but it is interesting that, you know, again, this comes back to how, you know, gun happy Hollywood is to, to glorify, uh, violence like this on screen. And then they're always the first ones to speak out about, you know, firearms and people owning guns and stuff like that. And I, that's kind of what the thrust of my piece is, which is, it's, it's just ironic to me, um, that you have a group of people in an industry who is so anti-gun, uh, to the point of not understanding gun laws or understanding firearms that you think they would, um, who are reflexively just because it's a liberal crowd and it's a liberal audience, uh, are, are it kind of they, they still go and use things like mass shootings or mass mass killing of kids uh, as a story device. And, and I don't think that it's about them reflecting a culture because it's science fiction. And it's one of these things where you know, Hollywood has decided that, that it's not going to be about escapism. It's going to be about, we're going to shame you about, you know, y- your beliefs and stuff. And we don't want 50% of the country even watching our films. And I think that that speaks to also why Maverick was kind of such a hit. That stuff is all left out of the film. You're just, here's a dude, here's his airplane. Uh, we're, we're not even going to give you the politics of basically who he's fighting uh, in the last third of that film. And so I think that that... It was an escapism. You could just go to the theater and have your face blown off by, you know, special effects of of F-18s, and you can get away from all of that shit for a couple hours. And then anyone who comes and turns on Stranger Things or Star Wars, they get a mass shooting right off the bat. And so, I, I, again, I, I find it ironic that that's kind of the route that they go. Yeah, I always found that kind of, like, you know, ironic. Every time I was, I was um, younger and getting into guns, and, like, it was, like, right after... Um, same book when I started seeing, you know, like what the gun debate was, and even when you were talking about it, I think maybe last week or so, like when the body shooting happened, it's like, um, kind of like how like that sort of like changed when sort of Obama started like you know politicizing these like things or whatever, and that's when like the media kind of like like went off the meds and kind of went full attacked off mode. So it's like I've pretty much been aware of most of like the sort of hypocrisies when it comes to like talking about the whole gun control debate, especially in Hollywood, but um, and then going back to the Maverick, talking about Maverick, which I've not seen yet, but I, was, I also kind of found it funny, there was just like one fringe like, writer saying that like it's military propaganda. <laughs> Fucking come on. Uh, yeah, there's, there's certainly less of it than there was in the first film. Uh, David Sims, ironically, The Atlantic, I think, said it right when he said it's it's not military propaganda, it's Tom Cruise propaganda. And when I was talking to people with it, it's like the first legacy film, legacy meaning, you know, a sequel that comes out 20 years later. Um, it's the first real legacy sequel that doesn't 
pass the baton to like a younger generation. Um, I mean, there's, there's obviously younger actors in it and the younger pilots, but the film is still all about Maverick. It's, it's his journey. It's not, you know, pass, you know, passing it on to the younger Ghostbusters or, uh, passing it on to the new Star Wars cast or anything like that. It's, it's, there's no, there's no setup for, you know, a new generation of Top Gun fighter pilots and we're going to get Top Gun Rooster next. It's, it's very much centered on still on Tom Cruise. Um, and so it's not so much military propaganda. It, it's very much, Tom Cruise propaganda, and I would also say technology propaganda. The way the way movies can be filmed now from inside cockpits, and this is one of the things I think has really resonated with audiences. Is I, I said on my podcast that Maverick just makes Marvel look like cartoons. It makes Marvel look like adult cartoons because Marvel like looks like it's just all shot inside of a computer. Um, and Maverick is very much not that it's, you see the G force on actors faces, you see their actual expressions when they do a a steep dive. And, um, it really does kind of just put you there Uh, as much as sometimes it feels like, you know, an aerial stunt documentary, but, um, I think that that's primarily why it resonated. And there's not many movie stars who can one carry a film like that anymore in two, uh, there aren't many movie stars or any productions that can tell China to just fuck off. You know, if, if you're not going to finance, fine. We're putting Taiwan back on the jacket. We don't care what you say. Yeah, and uh, one last point I'll make is kind of like what you're talking about with like CGI, like Marvel movies. It's like I was rewatching one of the uh, the hospital scenes in Spider-Man Two with um, like you know Tobey Maguire and like a uh, you know, um, <clears throat> you know sort of Doc Ock when he wakes up in the hospital and the tentacles are starting attacking the uh, so the surges or whatever it's like it's like pure like sam raimi like horror style shooting and like you see it's a great mixture of a little bit of cgi but also like practical effects where you feels like so horrifyingly real and i was thinking about it too i was like damn i cannot imagine it being that scene being filmed today and it's sort of like the practical effects being replaced more with like cgi and i think like i think like it was sort of like that scene back then was just sort of like striding, like, like kind of capturing lightning in a bottle where like it works so well. It works so well. And I cannot even imagine it being made today because I think today would not have like reached the same kind of like fear factor as it would have like back then, like almost 17 years. Thank you for the, thank you for bringing me up. Yeah. Being always talking to you. Great, Joseph. It's good to hear from you. Uh, Go ahead and jump in. Oh, where's Faye? Let's get Faye up here. Good evening, Stephen. There you are. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. So I wanted to talk briefly about the Depp Heard case, not about the case itself, but intersection with the media and social media, which is actually where my interest in this lies. Just I have like just quick background is that I, you know, before this case, I've literally seen only one movie with Depp in it in my life. Nothing with Heard. And so I didn't really have an opinion or a bias towards either one of them. I do remember back in 2018 reading. I, that- I do. I do have a little bit of bias toward Amber Heard movies. I'm just going <laughs> to put that out there. Okay. For obvious reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember the, the op-ed back in 2018, you know, being in the media, big deal and thinking, oh, you know, I never heard that, you know, he was a wife beater before, but you never know. And kind of dismissed it, you know? Um, and you know, the trial I really wasn't into until about a month ago, my Twitter friend, Danielle, who's an attorney and actually also was the one who told me a long time ago that 
I should sign up for this guy, Stephen L. Miller's podcast as well. So she's responsible for a lot of my lost time online. <laughs> you, you can blame me if you want to. <laughs> uh, she kind of got me into the trial and I was interested in it from the, the legal you know, argument perspectives. But, you know, having watched it for about four weeks, I had just like three quick comments and one question related to the media sort of intersection with this. The first is that, you know, watching everybody in the left flip out about the um, the verdict and about the people who supported him. It, it's kind of hilarious because they all defaulted immediately to, oh, all you people who supported it, you must be like, you know, these racist, bigoted Republicans, which is really hilarious because just you could tell even just from a little bit online, he's there's a really diverse coalition of people who are invested in this for a variety of reasons. Most of them, you know, not because they were even Depp fans. They were certainly not all or probably even largely Republicans. Um, this was a case where the jurors, I understand, included black and Asian jurors. The star, arguably star attorney of the case was a Hispanic female uh, attorney. But like that's the immediate left. Like they do not know at this point how to argue anything else. It's either, you know, my way or the highway. And if you're the highway, then clearly it's because you're a racist, evil, bigoted, conservative. And you know, I even saw someone say, haha, jokes on all the people who support death because, you know, it turns out that he's made these statements that he wished that someone would kill Trump and he lived in France and England. So I'm thinking, like, do you legitimately believe that his supporters care about that? <laughs> it's just, it just shows how their mindset is so monomaniacal that they don't understand anything else. Um, and it's largely media driven. They usually get, they get their instruction on how to think and feel. Uh, and they get, um, they get that solidified when they see the New York times or Washington post say, we're all Amber Heard now. And the rest of us, it's not like we support Johnny Depp. I mainly just roll my fucking eyes at this point because it's so reflexive and obvious what they're doing. Yeah. And I mean, even for the people who did support him, and I don't necessarily personally support him, but after watching it, the preponderance of the evidence and her, her obvious lies did, you know, make me support him for this case. Um, observation two is that it was really interesting to see, you know, how influential social media is, uh, because it kind of shaped the trial even as it was going along. It was brought into the court about how you know, there were the um, herds side tried to frame this. Oh, there was a you know big conspiracy. So anybody who used like hashtags in support of him was considered to be part of this um, alleged conspiracy. And you had a lot of lawyers who have YouTube channels who are explaining things. So not only did it have an influence, but you could see that even um, Depp's attorneys, who were very adept, didn't really fully understand some of the nuances of Twitter that were very important to understanding one of the charges. So, you know, they were questioning about like retweeting and replying and the difference between you know, just retweeting something versus posting a link and adding content on top of it. And so one thing that just, you know, came to mind here is that it's only going to continue to be an influence. And I think a lot of these law firms, even these major multinational ones really need they need to get like, just get a teenager or somebody, you know, to come <laughs> and, and like be a consultant for you. They need to understand this better to be able to do their job in cases where this comes up. Um, and they clearly do not pass a certain age. Um, I guess number three observation is that something I think that, you know, we've talked about on these calls and, and you've alluded to. It's just so 
interesting to watch mainstream media. They are so terrified of losing control over information dissemination. Um, you know, they, people went nuts and like the newspapers and everything, because you again had a lot of these lawyers who are on YouTube channels streaming and giving comments. And, you know, of course you have to evaluate information from these sources critically as you would with anything, but by and large, it's a kind of democratic process. They're taking comments in real time. They're offering their opinions. They're showing evidence. They're being very honest about that. But, you know, you saw the mainstream media trying to lump them all together. This is like a conspiracy of, of you know, they were trying to imply that, you know, Depp and his lawyers are somehow behind every YouTube lawyer who's giving commentary on the trial, every person on Twitter. Um, and it's so ironic because I think it's having the opposite effect. I've heard from people who really weren't too into the media wars that they are so turned off by hearing that if they tune into a YouTube channel and watch this, that it means that, you know, they're part of a conspiracy. Um, if they would just report honestly, <laughs> they would get more people. So I thought that was interesting as well. Um, so that's my last observation. And I guess my question for you is, it's uh, you, know, you mentioned the Vice article, but there have been so many articles, Vogue, the New York Times, everything, and they have clearly their marching orders. And there's not even an attempt to try to be even handed. It's so, oh, you know, she was clearly done wrong. This is, you know, she was, it's just so ridiculous. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, or would appreciate your thoughts on, on any of the points I raised, but also the question is, why did they go in, like, all in for her? She's a basic white woman, <laughs> frankly. I mean, she's an attractive, or was, I think, not so much anymore, but she doesn't fit any of these boxes that are supposed to be, you know, She's not transgender. She's not, uh, uh, you know, a, a racial or ethnic minority. So I guess I would appreciate your thoughts on any of that. Uh, because she's a pretty actress and a, and a woman. Also, she has obviously allies on that side of the aisle, which it looks like she lined up for the specific trial. She, she donated money to the ACLU. The ACLU is not really a free speech group anymore. It's a, it's a progressive liberal cause group under the banner of, you know, the American civil liberties union. Uh, she obviously has enough friends at the Washington post to get her name on a piece that she didn't write. Um, and of course it's, it's the, it's, it's the narrative that all men are abusers. I mean, the left is fully in on title nine stuff on campus where, uh, it's not prove your innocence. It's that you're guilty and, and we're going to charge you regardless of any evidence that we have. Um, there was a great Twitter thread just by, and this is again, when you talk about mainstream media and why, and why social media and why independent media thrives is, because we just we don't get truth from these people. Uh, Amber Heard's attorney can go on with Savannah Guthrie, and Savannah Guthrie will have a very uh, basic understanding of what went on in this trial. She probably has researchers that have given her highlight notes just so she can ask the questions that she wants to ask them without causing any controversy. Um, there's a, a, a woman on Twitter named Natalie Wingington Burrell. Uh, she says she, her pronouns, bad YouTuber, gym nut, politics, enthusiast, feminist, liberal wife, defender of the public. So she's an attorney. Yeah. She has a YouTube channel also. She's one of yeah. the people I watched. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to read a Twitter thread from someone who doesn't appear to be a conservative nut here. Okay. Um, she says, here's why Amber Heard lost. According to the law and the facts, Johnny Depp sued Amber Heard for defamation of character. So he had to prove by a preponderance of evidence that Amber Heard published a statement that was false, that harmed his reputation, and that was about him. 
Because Johnny Depp is a public figure, he had to prove that Amber Heard acted with actual malice in doing these things, which is a higher standard than what non-public figures face. This means Amber Heard acted with a reckless disregard for the truth and didn't honestly believe her claims. Uh, so coming to this, coming into this, Johnny Depp had a very difficult hurdle to overcome. Uh, VA has a case against a uh, Virginia case called Herbert versus Lando that says that Johnny Depp has to bring evidence of all the surrounding circumstances, including the history between the parties and prior statements by Amber Heard. And that's a heft burden. A jury doesn't get to just go off of how they feel about the parties in assessing the evidence. They have to follow the law that's given in jury instructions. One of those instructions about the credibility of witnesses who provide the support for the surrounding circumstances. Based on all of that, the evidence has to be overwhelmingly in favor of Johnny Depp for him to win. And it was. And here's why. Uh, and if you bear with me, there's a few more here. It says the jury has to consider all of these factors when assessing the credibility of witnesses. Credibility matters because that's what proves the actual malice. Most important in this case was number six, contradictions. When Amber Heard contradicted other evidence, Johnny Depp got more evidence. <laughs> and also more evidence that the statements were false, and also more evidence that the statements were about him. It says, here was the evidence that contradicted Amber Heard by the incidents alleged. Incident one, the penthouse incident. Heard said that Depp assaulted her in their penthouse, leaving behind destruction and injuries to her. Witness Alejandro Romero, a front desk manager, saw Amber Heard the next day and saw no injuries. Isaac Bar uh, Baruch, Barish, whatever, testified that he saw Amber Heard within hours of the alleged assault and saw no injuries. He wept on the stand about the injustice of her false allegations. Three LAPD officers testified that they responded immediately after the alleged incident in the penthouse and saw no signs of injury to Amber Heard and that they saw none of the alleged property damage. Amber Heard alleged that Johnny Depp spilled wine in the hall and had pics of it on a body cam. There was no wine. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here in a second and noted. Do you really think our media is gonna take the side of three NYPD officers? So right there, our media has a conscious bias. They say we can't show that new that Los Angeles Police Department officers could be upstanding witnesses because of George Floyd. That's what they think. Right there, 25 year old BuzzFeed reporter says I can't I can't report on what the LAPD might think because I'm gonna get ratioed. Incident two, the filing of the TRO. The next day, Amber Heard appeared at a courthouse to request a restraining order against Depp with a bruise on her face, the bruise that was not seen by five witnesses or body cam footage. Amber Heard testified that she had no idea that the media would be there. Uh, however, a former TMZ staff member testified that they were alerted that she would be at the courthouse with a bruise on the left side of her face. Amber Heard herself testified in a deposition previously that TMZ had been alerted before gasping and covering her face. Let me be clear here. Amber Heard contradicted her own self. That's bad. It's always evidence, pardon the Frenchie. It's always evidence of deception. Anyway, the very next day after appearing with the bruise, Amber Heard was photographed smiling with her friend with no bruise on her face. Um, in the interest of time, I mean, this goes on and on and on and on, but that, that's just a kind of a good intro of that. And you should go back and read uh, this whole thing. Her handle is at Matlaw, your chick. Um, but if you just Google Natalie Whittingham, you'll get the whole thread. And these are all details, again, that are in a Twitter thread that CBS This Morning isn't going to cover because they basic, they want to have interviews with Michael Strahan and do cooking segments. 
So they're not going to go into these details. I, I doubt even the people at CBS or NBC Morning Show know these details. I doubt that the Washington Post people who cover this trial know these details. I know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, if Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times were to write an op-ed on this, she probably doesn't know these kinds of details. And that's the biggest problem is you have people who are not only dangerously biased, you have people who are dangerously uninformed to these things. I don't have a horse in this race. I don't care about Johnny Depp or Amber Heard. I care that the Washington Post somehow allowed an op-ed to be published without researching it, without saying, okay, are her claims in this true? Um, Because we're on the hook for this. Uh, They didn't. They published something because of an agenda bias. It fit in neat. Uh, They had a a pretty actress um, who could sell it to somebody who's had a troubled history of relationships in Johnny Depp. And let's face it, Me Too was a flame and flaming, you know, pointing their guns at, at anyone who'd ever looked at a woman wrong. So again, as I've said, I, I don't, I don't care about these two people. Um, they clearly should not have been in a relationship with each other. They clearly both have emotional problems that should be nowhere near each other. But again, this is kind of this woman's thread um, that facts matter in this stuff. And too many times our media, like The Atlantic or The Washington Post, just rely on the agenda or the narrative. So, Faye, if you want to comment on, on anything that I just read or just followed up with. Thanks. No, just quickly, you know, agree in closing that ultimately I'm not too concerned with either party. They're, they both have a lot of resources. They'll be fine. But I think what really did resonate for me and a lot of others was one, as you said, the fact that the media is so obviously not only ill-informed, but unconcerned <laughs> about becoming informed, even though there is a wide plethora of, you know, that information readily available because it doesn't fit the narrative. Um, and I think we all lose out when, again, the media continues to be just propaganda instead of exploring and, and doing what they should. Uh, and I, you know, the other thing I would just say in closing, <laughs> something that really resonated for me as well, um, and I think other people, is that they're, the left is so willing to just say, you know, justice be damned. And most people don't have the resources or the support that Depp had. And so, you know, don't care about him, but it's scary to think about how readily, um, you know, the, the left is just willing to completely ruin someone's life for a narrative. And that should scare anybody, no matter what your sex is, because even if you're a woman, you know, you've got a husband, you've got a father, a brother, a son, uh, and you just see how, how readily and willingly they're willing to just destroy someone like that. It's, it's really scary. Yeah. My final thought on this particular uh, call and, and this thing is the Atlantic just published a piece titled the first amendment is stronger than Johnny Depp. So <laughs> you can, I can, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm, you know, being dangerously assumptive of what that's going to include, but given the outlet and given the title, it's again, you just, I, I, I'm at the point where I just roll my eyes into the back of my skull. So Faye, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to try to get through uh, these last five. Uh, so we'll go Brad, Donna, Andrew, Edward, and we'll end with uh, Chazzy. And so apologies to anyone uh, who missed it, but I will probably be right back here on Monday. Brad, uh, open topic. You're free to comment on anything that I laid out or your own thing. Brad, uh, the mute button's right at the bottom if you, if you haven't used Sorry. it before. There he is. Hey, there Brad. he is. Um, first time caller, long time listener. Appreciate it. Uh, just a quick comment on Maverick. Uh, just something you mentioned on your podcast today, why you didn't understand the F-14 connection to Iran. Yes. Just a quick uh, thing from a – I was never in the Navy, never been in the military. I was a military brat. 
big nerd, read the Jane's books, uh, played video games, that kind of thing. But uh, F-14 Tomcat was an airframe that was sold to the Iranians when they were our ally. They, they used it during the time of the Shah. And then it's just kind of a, another a little bit of egg on our face when that when the revolution happened that uh, they were they had a lot of American arms because they were a American ally. So so but if you also notice in the film the insignia, and for those of you who haven't seen it, we're not really spoiling anything. Um, the insignias on the plane are just kind of video game. They're not really of Iran or or anything else. So but you're saying the assumption is that because. Uh, the, the United States gave them the F-14s that the bad guy in the movie must have been Iran. And for those of you who haven't seen it, they leave it pretty ambiguous about who the enemy is. And they do this in the first one as well, although it's a, we assume in the first one it's Russia. Um, but, you know, the only line they get in the first one is when Maverick shoots down all the jets in the end and, and the commander on the aircraft carrier says, although the other side denies anything happened. So you never really get who the bad guy is. And they do the same thing in this movie. They don't ever tell you explicitly, you know, we're dealing with uh, the Iranian forces or anything like this. All that is, all that you hear about is Iranian uh, uranium being enriched. But I didn't know because I had a bunch of callers on my podcast say, well, it was clearly Iran. And I said, I don't think it was Iran because they never reference Iran. They just say it's Iranian uranium being shipped to this underground plant, which they have to blow up and commit this impossible mission. And I noted that basically Maverick is a Mission Impossible movie. It's even the plot is right out of Mission Impossible just with fighter jets. Um, but so do you so am I wrong on this then, Brad? Do you, do you are you genuinely in the camp that it's Iran because of the F-14 angle at the end? I, I actually don't have an opinion on the film. I don't have a conclusion there because I haven't actually seen it. I'm just, okay. I was just trying to give you a little context on the connection. Kind of, it's a it's an egg on our face situation, kind of like, uh, you know, Rambo three. I think he goes and you know in the movie <laughs> dedicated yeah. to the brave the fighters of the, the Mujahideen. Yeah. They have stinger missiles. Yeah, it's great. And now we're like, oh, we got to invade Afghanistan. I hope they yeah. don't have any anti aircraft. Oh no. <laughs> And that 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 uh, that that phrase, or you know, the brave fighters, I think was removed from Rambo Three after uh, it turned out those were the people who you know launched a jihad against us. Um, but yeah, so yeah, we're not for Brad. We're not spoiling anything. Um, there there is a reason why the F fourteen comes into play, and if I go into that, then it would be spoiling something. But um, yeah, it's they leave it ambiguous. But I was. This is one of the things I like about uh, just different people with different experiences and knowledge like that, because this was a little bit before my time. I had no idea about uh, this connection with the F-14. So, um, and I guess the other thing is just the, the atmosphere of where, they, of where this takes place is in cold mountaintops. So uh, I'm still sticking by just based on the film that, I mean, it, it's Eastern European. It could be Russia, Belarus, or, you know, uh, superpowers that were dealing with Iran. So... Um, but it certainly it certainly could be that case. But I do I do appreciate the info, and it is funny to me that they leave it really open. Um, it's kind of to me Tom Cruise basically saying I don't want to offend any country where I could possibly play this movie, including Iran. Well, the the other just general point on kind of why I'm, the reaction I have, like I said, I haven't seen the film. I've just more kind of taken in the reaction, and it makes me really optimistic because I'm thinking obviously not all of Hollywood will. But maybe some of Hollywood will follow the model 
you know, I think of it as kind of what the Daily Wire is doing, which is you don't have to make conservative films. People, conservatives, I'm conservative. I don't want to see God's Not Dead 14. Uh, you just have to make movies that don't have a gut punch where it's like an entertaining, gripping film and you know there's not going to be a part where they're like, well, you knew they were bad because they had a Bible and they bought a gun. Yeah, I would agree with that. And um, it, it is interesting to see kind of like what you said about Real Daily Wire and they had, you know, Run, Hide, Fight, which was still a pretty compelling film. And it was about, you know, a school shooting. Um, and I, I think what Real Daily Wire is just basically saying is, is that we're, we're not going to be, you know, uber Christian conservative, but we're just not going to be what those guys are doing. And I, I think the jury's out on, you know, if that works out uh, in the long term. But certainly what a film like Maverick accomplishes is that we on a big stage, we can be that kind of film. And also we don't need to cater to political interests. Um, you, you, again, I don't see a ton of propaganda in this film. Um, there's very few scenes that show American flag unabashedly kind of like Michael Bay does. And that's kind of what I thought about Maverick. I was like, this is like if Michael Bay learn to be a good filmmaker and put the bullshit aside. This is the kind of film you would make. Um, don't get me wrong. I appreciate Michael Bay and some of his, some of his glory, but not all of it. Um, but it is, like I said, I do recommend people seeing it. It's, it's one of those where, you know, people are talking about the movies, the movies are back and stuff like that. And, um, it, it's interesting on several levels of even screenwriting. Like I said, it's, it's one of these few franchise films that, exists within the, the the nostalgia of the universe exists inside the film. And what I mean by that is like Ghostbusters, for instance. Yeah, you bring back the cast and there's the shout outs and there's the car and, but that's all kind of the universe. And then of course, like Star Wars, it's like, you know, there's two, we were home and there's all this stuff, but very rarely does a film look back on its past material with such, you know, reverence and so much like in a sense respect. Um, the, the, the first top gun is as much a part of this movie as the new angles are, um, say for, you know, Kelly McGillis, Gillis is kind of, you know, not in it because of, you know, obvious reasons, but, uh, so much of this film depends on the nostalgia of the original, even, and I mean that as a compliment because it kind of honors the material, it honors what happens in the first film without just kind of washing it away. And so that was kind of a weird level, but it also just completely works on its own as a film. And so I always said, I'm a cynic when everybody jumps on board with something. I'm one of the first people I'm like, all right. Um, but it, it really is, it is a great film. And it's, it's one of those where, like I said, it accomplishes being able to tell China to fuck off without making an overtly political statement. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. We'll go to Donna. Hold on here. Sorry, Donna. I was just trying to get you up. And so we'll go Donna. Hello. Uh, go ahead, Donna. How are you? Okay. Um, I haven't seen Maverick, but I do have a question for you about it. Your theater experience. Did you find that there was a popcorn shortage? No, but I, I've, uh, I've read about this, that this is another possible thing coming. Uh, the theater I was at said that some items might not be available due to supply chain issues. There was an actual sign in the lobby for that. Uh-huh. The other thing I wanted to ask you, um, I'm not sure what her name is, or last name anyway, um, part of the PR pool, uh, the White House pool. Uh, Kelly, might you know who that is? 
No. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, at the briefing today, she went pretty hard on uh, Karine Jean-Pierre. I don't know if you got a chance to watch it. But she said, who briefed the president on baby formula? To say there was no specific person is not a satisfactory answer. And uh, Karine refused to, to tell her who briefed the president on it. I mean, she really, like, went all around it. I mean, she even came out and said, he is the president of the United States. Like, you know, we're all questioning that. In fact, is he really? Um, I, I'm just wondering if you are, maybe I'm being too hopeful here, but to me, it seems like the media is starting to go after them pretty hard. I mean, there's just so many failures that they can cover for. Do you think that that's what's happening here? I know in your podcast you mentioned somebody, uh, John, somebody or other, committed journalism. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was it was Ed O'Keefe who was oh. pre- pressing her pretty hard on, you know, who who was it from what company, from what CEO, from what baby formula company was the first to call the White House and say, hey, we might need your help on this. And when did that happen? And she said, I don't have a timeline for that. Um, and then, of course, Biden himself said yesterday at the same time, he's, he's over here doing his thing and she's over here doing her thing, said he's upset and he didn't know about it until April. So what we know is that from from April, from February to April, Biden is claiming nobody told him about it. Well, that should pretend, OK, what's going on inside this White House where no one is telling the president something that was on everybody, apparently everybody's radar, including CNN from November. And then, of course, the only the first mention of the baby formula crisis was May 9th at this White House in a press conference. So Biden hears about it in April. Then the first time they're asked about it is in May. And this all started sort of back in November of last year. And. It just again. This is this is the problem with this guy. He always looks like he's out of the loop, or he's flat-footed, or he's slow to respond. And they're not really looking for ways to solve the problems anymore. They're just trying to pull the Bill Clinton Act. I, I understand your pain. I'm with you. And it's not going to work because Joe Biden has been part of Washington for 40 years. People know about this. Um, they can try to pull the empathetic grandpa act all they want, but that went out the window when he turned his back at several press conferences on questions about U.S. troops stranded in Afghanistan. So if the press was smart and if they weren't agenda biased, they would keep pushing on this and say, "Okay, like you said, like Donna said, um, who was it that told the president about this? Who, who found out about this and who informed him? I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, we get our information from Twitter. That's probably legitimate, legitimately what the answer would be. Yeah, I mean, she specifically said, this is a quote. I'm not going to confirm who it was. I'm just letting you know there are regular channels that we use. Well, then what were they? What are they? It, just answer the damn question. And then Kelly, whoever she is, reiterated it even more forcefully. And that's when she said, well, blah, blah, blah. He is the president of the United States, which is like, well, yeah, no kidding, really. Uh, it's just, you can see them like coming apart at the seams. And I really am starting to wonder if other Democrats are, you know, the rats are abandoning ship and they're calling their friends in the press saying, go after him so that we can separate ourselves. Uh, I mean, I don't know if they are explicitly doing that, but I think the media sees the writing on the wall that uh, no president with this kind of approval rating is going to hold Congress. Joe Biden is 
right now, historically, the most unpopular president in American history at this point in the presidency. That's he's un, he's more unpopular than Donald Trump. And that's with a friendly media who's trying to treat him like, you know, the the old man trying to give the country a Werther's. OK, and so just imagine if they were doing their jobs and really pushing him on, you know, how come inflation started during your presidency? Do you think that has anything to do with the spending bills we passed? or the stimmy checks or any of that. And, uh, and you know, they know that if they ask those questions, his eyeball is going to pop out of his head. Um, and so again, they, they kid glove him and they kid glove Jean-Pierre because it's gay pride month. And we can't be doing that to an African-American gay press secretary. Um, but you see what happens when just they receive even the gentlest pushback with easy questions, which is, you know, if you say you've been on top of this since February, then why didn't Biden know about it until April? And Jean-Pierre just kind of looks down and reads her notebook and says, you know, this was a full government uh, action. You know, we got the FDA. Well, the FDA isn't just some fucking rogue agency. The FDA is part of the executive branch. Biden is ultimately in charge of the FDA as well. He can appoint someone in charge. But again, he's the guy who oversees all of this. And so I don't know if it's abandoning the ship. I think it's going to be interesting to see which Democrats want him on the campaign trail in two to three months and probably not very many when you get right down to it. I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much. I'll let you go because I know you have a hockey game you want to watch. <laughs> I, we saw, I still have a few minutes, so we'll get through everyone else. But thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, we'll wrap up here with Edward Chazzy and Matt. I didn't see Matt from New Jersey all the way back there, so we'll, we'll wrap up with you four. Andrew, how are you? I'm good, Stephen. I'm going to try to make this really quick. Uh, uh, I was just when it uh, my you were previously talking about the whole Joe, um, Joe Biden having this history of being this insider. I just was looking back through the history and just thinking it's basically been nothing but outsiders since since Nixon, and then we finally did an insider, and everything seems to go to hell. So maybe there's a reason the American people are just so focused on choosing someone from the outside of the Washington, D.C., if you know what I mean. I, yeah, I guess Bush I, I think, was not. I, yeah, I think that's a, yeah, I think that that's interesting. Obviously, H.W. was not an outsider, but he, he's, he was a guy elected on Reagan's, you know, reputation. And they just said, hey, you know, everything's going great. Why change now? And certainly with Dukakis. Um, so, but go ahead. I didn't. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, I, I thought you were going to point there. Do you think that there's a um, a certain health in the in the republic to having this attitude of the capital needs to have someone come in every few years and just just not be have as many of these internal relationships and just I, having these sorts of toxic, you know, third stringer Obama people populating everything because that in many ways is despite how good you know um bush handled the uh that the gulf war he he just became so calcified within there that a certain level he he was probably gonna he was probably gonna lose and that's why he got so pushed out by perot of all people yeah i think it's i mean my opinion is pretty general there's a reason why everybody who says i'm gonna go to washington to change things doesn't end up really changing things it's because the system exists to make it very, very hard to change things. And that can be very good and that can be very bad. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm the opinion of basically gridlock is mostly good. 
Um, I, I just want to be left alone. So, you know, I don't want, you know, several laws passed. I don't even care if it's Republican or, or Democrat. I just mainly want you to make sure that I'm not bombed in my house. Uh, my, I don't have, you know, I don't have to ruin the shocks on my car from potholes and just leave me, just leave me alone. I'm part of the generation X, leave me alone demographic. Um, but there is a reason why so many of these guys, you know, say I'm coming to Washington to change things and, and whatever. And then they, they just become absorbed into that system. Um, part of that's frustration. Part of that's just because it's the power. Part of it's because it's an entrenched in excuse me, institution, but it's also part of the reason why I generally just don't believe politicians who say that anymore. And it could be those that I generally like, or it's those that I could personally think, yeah, I think that person would be a good president. I think you touch on something with Joe Biden, who's just been a senator for 40, 42 years and has been running for president every election since 1984. And eventually, you know, everyone he ran against just fell by the wayside. Um, you know, like the Dick Gebhardts of Washington and those people just, you know, one by one, they just ticked off. And, you know, Hillary had her shot and she lost. And John Kerry had his shot and he lost. And uh, all of these candidates that were in the mold of Joe Biden just fell by the wayside until Biden just met a moment, um, which was people just for for agree or don't agree, just got tired of, of the loud guy screaming on Twitter all the time. And I, I generally think Trump's Trump's attitude toward COVID is what cost him the election. If COVID doesn't happen, I don't think Trump loses. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people who would agree with me on that. Uh, the problem is, is with the Democratic Party, uh, all they cared about was winning that election. They probably would have been better off with someone like Buttigieg or Klobuchar or whatever, someone who brought a fresher face to Washington, D.C. And now... Uh, they're running into some serious problems, which is you have an unlikable president who doesn't know how to govern. Joe Biden can't skate. Uh, that's an inside joke. Um, and he's someone who, you know, is just kind of happy to be president. He got the job. And now there's this worst kept secret is that his party wants him to run again. But what happens if he does? And I've stated that there's going to be primaries, even if he says he's running again. You're going to see I'm going to guess at, at least three primary challengers, which means Joe Biden's going to have to get involved into a into a primary, and I'm not so sure he comes out of it. Um, and one of those could be from his own vice president, uh, who is also historically unpopular. And so Biden has allowed himself to basically get pulled by all of these different levers and all of these different groups. Uh, because, again, he, he was elected president, and that was enough. And now it's, thank you, Joe. You did what you were supposed to do. You got rid of the orange, big, laughing clown, and now we just need you to please shut the fuck up and let us do what we want. Uh, the problem is Joe Biden's, again, been he's been running for this job for 25 years, since, since 84, I think. He's running every election, 84, 88, 92. He was a candidate. He only drew about 1% of the vote. So once you get that job, do you really think he's just going to stand by? Do you think he's just going to like, uh, uh, no, he's going to, he's going to want the job again. Um, so my, it's going my to, it, concern about that is that he's an 82 year old with tapioca for brains. Right. But he doesn't think that. And I guess I get that most people who talk to the lamp thinking that it's Eleanor Roosevelt uh, don't think that. But if he says he wants to run again, he's the president. And I've always said, I, I think eventually what's going to happen it's probably Jill and Ron Klain pull him aside and say, honey, you did, sweetheart, you did what you needed to do for the country. It's time to, it's time to whatever. Um, 
but who knows? He could just say, no, fuck you. I'm the president. I'm going to run again. Okay. Um, so yeah, you bring up a good point that really for some of us, this is the first president of our lifetime who is kind of an entrenched Washington figure. And again, like you said, you see how this is going and it's not going well. And this is someone who is just, he's kind of a dinosaur convinced that, uh, his policies and his spending is, is working and it's just not. Um, and this is, this was also talk in the Edward Isaac DeVore piece, which is he's much more president akin to the newspaper times and old just NBC and whatever. He doesn't really pay a focus on, you know, how the dialogue is shifted to social media, but the people around him have. And that's why you have an administration that is so wrapped up in what they see on Twitter, uh, colliding with a president who doesn't even know what the fuck a Twitter is. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I'll let you get off and, uh, all I can, the last thing I can say is enjoy Mike Smith while he's there because you're probably going to have Igor Shosturkin on the other side of, in the cup. Yeah, I said that the four teams left are the two best goalies in the league in the East versus the two best players in the league in the West, and one of and one of those two, and what two of those four are going to get through. Um, but you know, I, I I've been to Ranger games. I live in New York, and obviously I, I grew up in Colorado. I became more of an Islanders guy just because of the pocketbook. Um, but, uh, the Rangers were celebrating last night after it's like they won the series. And I don't know, man, I, I look at what Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay just goes, okay, we dropped one and they're very much businesslike. And I think if I'm the Rangers, I, uh, temper down the celebration a bit, uh, cause you still have six games to go and, uh, they're not going to be very easy, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go right with you. I'm enjoying the hell out of Mike Smith and I, and I will continue to do so for the next three games. <laughs> Um, so we'll see. Edward, uh, go ahead. We're in these last three. Um, so go ahead and bring us home. Hey, Stephen. Top Gun Maverick. Uh, just saw it. And when Tom Cruise uh, put on his jacket and I saw the Taiwan flag, I, I, I felt the energy shifting. Right. Uh, this movie was what I thought was great. Uh, I really thought it portrayed the military as, you know, competent professionals fighting for their country uh, since the beginning of the war on terror. You know, we've seen a lot of Hollywood movies that are very anti-military in the sense that the military members are either, you know, they're either victims or they're they're demonic uh, uh, oppressors of, of whoever they're trying to fight. And this movie was different in the fact that it actually showed the, uh, you, you know, the military members, uh, you know, actually competent and fighting for something that they, they they viewed was good and worthwhile so so what did you think of that and uh did they do you, do you think this sets a, a tone for hollywood going forward on abandoning cgi addiction and maybe even being pro-american in the future uh not pro-american um i think that that's one of the big things about this film is like i said about marvel which is what you're pretty much up against with every film now. If you want a tentpole film, you're up against Marvel. And I, I, I commented on the podcast how I watched Spider-Man No Way Home from, from my house. I, I don't really go to Marvel films anymore. I did go to Doctor Strange because I had some time. But every film just looks like it's shot on a green screen. And it's so hyper-digitalized to where my eyes just are bothered by it. Nothing looks real, like not even the lighting, like, like everything looks like it's computerized, touched up and everything. And they put lens flares behind everything. It just, it, it really fucking bugs me. Um, 
And so when you see a film like Maverick, it's, it's, it's not only nostalgia for the topic or the actors, it's, it's like a holy shit. Like, this is what you can do when you care about making a movie. Um, this is a kind of film like James Cameron used to make, you know, like you can, you can hate on Titanic all you want. Like the love story's cliche and the writing is bad, but you know, if you, if you remember when Titanic came out, that was supposed to be a huge bomb because it had been delayed two or three times. And it was a huge, it was delayed because Jim Cameron literally rebuilt Titanic. Like he didn't build the whole boat, but he built the whole side of it and then opened so he could film inside compartments. And, that was kind of like at that time, even verboten, it was like, why are you doing this? We can kind of do this on a computer. It's like, well, we're going to build the fucking boat. And again, he did that stuff in true lies where he actually, he actually gets the U S military to get the jump jets. And that's kind of what it reminded me of. And then before Jim Cameron, you know, lost his balls and just decided I'm going to make Fern Gully for the rest of my life. But that's, a, that's again, Mad Max Fury road is another perfect example of your eyes can tell the difference between something that is, like a CGI body going across the, the, the screen or a CGI stunt as opposed to like really throwing a dude up from a car onto a diesel going 50 miles an hour. And they just don't make movies like that anymore. It's, it's almost like, a, like they don't even do basic stuff like, like apocalypse now. Like we need to go rent 50 helicopters <laughs> just, just to get a scene where they're flying in. Like, that's all I want to do. And it's like, no, we can just we can just do 50 helicopters on a, on a CGI. And there's no filmmakers out there really saying, no, fuck it. We're going to make this real. And that's because studios just don't want to invest the time, the money or anything into that. And it really that's to me like they should learn something from that. There's a reason why people still hail Mad Max, what, six, seven, eight years later. And there's a reason why people are flocking to see Maverick. And it's not just because of Tom Cruise. It's because of these effects. And it's because of, you know, w what these actors are willing to go through to show you a realistic story. And so hopefully they learn something in that. I don't think that they do. Everything is, you know, a is a product now. Everything is just coming off the assembly line, like Marvel style. And that's what they're just going to continue to do. Hey, just a parting shot. Iran was 100% the bad guy. Uh, they were the only uh, adversarial nation state that we ever sold F-14s to. And uh, even though the, the, the one thing that was weird was they had the fifth generation fighters, which is something that, you know, they're not going to have. But aside from that. So, so who would have issue, who would have fifth generation fighters? It would be Russia, would be and, China. Russia and China. Right. And so I thought there's no way that the, the bad guy is China. Like they might spurn China, but there's no way that they're going to physically go out there and put the red star on the tail wing of, of, of a fighter jet. Yeah, I, I agree. And the, the most unrealistic thing in the movie was that Tom Cruise made it to Captain uh, 06 in the Navy. He would have been out by 03 or 04. <laughs> yeah. I, what's interesting is I rewatched the first top gun and he, there's actually even he repeats lines like the line where he says if you think up there you're dead that's directly out of the first movie and then i think it's funny at the end of top gun they say what do you you know the guy says to him so what are you going to do now now that you're this you know how should fight and he says well i'm thinking about becoming an instructor and the guy says top gun ha fuck look at and then you realize he says you know he says in the in this new film i lasted two months so it really it kind of goes back into his history and, and it's all about kind of just because he throws Goose's tags into the ocean doesn't mean that he's at peace with what happened. Um, and so they, they really do a good job taking that aspect of it seriously. So um, 
do you think after you've seen it, this is where I'm up in the air. Do you think that you're, we're going to see a Maverick two? I with how much money, with how much money it's made and how much praise it's gotten. Are we going to see a top gun three slash Maverick two? Tom Cruise has made a deal with the devil where he will never age. Yeah, I talked. So, yeah, so I talked. I a hundred percent think that that's possible. Yeah, I talked about we'll that see. also. Is <laughs> when you watch this movie, it, 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 part of the storyline is Maverick's alone. He's kind of Maverick, you know. That's always he flies alone. He's a loner. He does things his own way. And another interesting part of the film is part of it is reconciling how everyone you know is kind of gone. And so Val Kilmer comes in for a couple of great scenes. One really amazing scene um, where it's like, you're, you're sitting here going like, I'm feeling emotion during a Top Gun film. And part of, <laughs> part of that is directly because of Kilmer's condition now. Um, and part of that's also just because you remember the scene of, you know, you, you're dangerous. And now you're seeing these guys and they're in their fifties and sixties. And yeah, you're right. Like Kilmer's aged, but Tom Cruise hasn't fucking aged. And there's an interesting kind of thing behind that where we know why Kelly McGillis wasn't in this film is because Kelly McGillis is really aged. Um, and so they kind of saddle Cruz with a, an acceptable love interest sort of in Jennifer Connelly. But then it's also about how Anthony Edwards isn't around. It's just kind of him. And that's another kind of meta layer to this where – and Tom Cruise also has a bad dye job in this film. Like he clearly – his hair is dyed and you can tell – it's like a flat black. You can kind of see the dye line around the, the, the roots. That's one of the problems doing a film in hyper IMAX cameras. Um, but that's another level to this that, yeah, it's like Tom Cruise is an unholy succubus servant of Xenu, but he traded his soul to become that. And like everyone around him is just like either getting old or dying. And it's, it's another interesting part of this film. That's kind of, they kind of work that aspect into it a little bit. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, and uh, I, I think because of the bajillions of dollars it made, we're going to see a Top Gun three goose. Or yeah, if, I, if you know, if you happen. know, if you know, so Top Gun two, he Cruz have been trying to get Top Gun two made for almost eight nine years so far, and one of the stories about it was the original in- conception or the original inception of Maverick was going to be Maverick uh, fighting drones. It was going to be you know, a top fighter pilot against AI and against drones. And they thought that that might've been too science fiction-y for, you know, what they wanted to do. So they kind of dialed it back a bit. Um, but I can see that. I can see them saying, you know what, this made too much money. It, it got too much uh, attention and praise. It might win. A, it's going to win a fuck ton of Oscars and it might win best picture um, to the point to where they're going to, and Tom Cruise is supposed to be winding down mission impossible uh, to the point to where I think that I think it's a good chance we're going to probably see Maverick 2 and it's going to be against like unmanned drones and it's going to be, you know, Maverick in space or some shit. Yeah, they made that movie in like 2003. It was called Stealth. It sucked. Yeah, but, that, uh, but that, I, did, I, I, that I didn't have his another. star power and it didn't have the, that, that, that technology or the, that, that director. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Cool, Edward. All right, Chazzy, I'm cutting into hockey game time, so don't let me down here. What's on your mind? Uh-oh. Did he go? Am I going to have to drop Chazzy? Nope, there he no. is. This has been a super maverick podcast, um, and uh, it takes him back to 08 and makes me think of Sarah Palin in 08. I want to tell you three things I cannot wait for. One, God is not dead, 14. Two, Elon and Amber era. 
And number three, your review of Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? Cannot wait for that. Um, what I can wait for is Maverick. When I can see Shelly Miscavich safe and sound in public, then I will buy popcorn and soda if it's available and go see Maverick. So I wanted to start with that. A um, couple of things I wanted to tell you about. I'm, I'm sorry I missed the school's entry uh, episode last week. I work with schools. You have to get like credentialed, fingerprinted, give me your driver's license at the one entry every time you want to go in there. And the part that I can't understand, and I, I, if you give me a quick answer on this, is like, how do people not understand you can't go in one way, but you can go out another way? Is that really a thing on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was 100%. Um, let me, I'm going to try to look these up here on my phone without hanging up on people. No, that's um, fine. No, 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 we're going to read these. <laughs> here is, here is um, Peter Baker, the New York Times said, uh, one place guns will be banned in Texas this week at the NRA conference when Trump addresses supporters. Secret Service is barring attendees from bringing firearms into the room. Dave Weigel, how does how many doors does a building have? If it's more than one, and that's <laughs> Dave being Dave. Here's Karen Tumulty. Wouldn't building schools with only one door create other problems, like making it harder for kids to get out, say if there's a fire? Just oh trying God. to think this through. Also, you have to build schools with no windows. Here is uh, yeah. Swin Swazenbeg from Rolling Stone retweeting CJ Saramella from Reason. Uh, Ted Cruz, this is quoting Ted Cruz, have one door and have that one door armed police officers at that door. If that had happened when the psychopath had arrived, armed police officers could have taken him out. CJ Saramella says, would there have been any potential problem with having one exit in a building with hundreds of people, none that I can think of, and I have a huge brain. You sure do, CJ. Uh, here's Tim <laughs> Miller, Bulwark Tim. Have the people pushing the single entry point to school solution ever seen a school? Here's my high school. Please explain to me how that's going to work. And Tim has labeled uh, several door entryways into the building, including the softball field, track, and parking lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Ken Miller one is I love because he's treating it like it's a theory that has never been tried. Like he's treating it like it's some harebrained thing that was that, you know, Cernovich came up with reading Reddit. <laughs> it's instead of like it's already being implemented in just about every fucking public school in the country. There was a few others. Wesley Laurie was in on that as well. Uh, but those are my favorites. And I had those obviously saved when yeah. I wrote about this. No, well, I, Steve, they're it, either it, stupid to this or they're either I think they're using it to just specifically dunk on Cruz. I think they know they know what an emergency exit is, but they can't agree with anything Ted Cruz because that's when the bulwark abandons them. Well, in, in fairness to Tim Miller, his campus has 16 basketball stadiums. Yeah, like his campus looks courts, like a so. fucking university. Like, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, showing your privilege, man, don't do that. Don't don't show that you went to school with like a place with both a home and away football field. Right. Exactly. So I wanted to get your take on a, on on kind of another take about like a serious question about safety. And then I wanted to leave you with two recommendations for podcasts. Actually, I think I want to start with that because those they're not the second one is kind of past F your mom territory. But the first one is uh, Louis and Shane Gillis talking through the presidents. 
I highly recommend looking it up on YouTube. The second one is The Benefit of Hindsight, which is basically a podcast talking about how Jerry Sandusky at Penn State was completely innocent of everything. And it was a total cluster F and um, he should have a retrial. So I want those two things. But the last thing that I want to talk about was um, this sign that sits outside a Texas high school. It says, attention, please be aware that the staff at Argyle ISD are armed and may use whatever force is necessary to protect our students. Why doesn't every school just put that outside their sign, whether it's true or not? Visual deterrent. Yes. It's basically, go like, in? It's basically like beware of dog or, you know, this school is guarded by a SWAT team three out of five days. You guess which three, you know, one of these fun bumper sticker signs. You're right. Um, but the ones I go into are all the opposite. It's like guns aren't allowed in here. Guns aren't allowed in here. And to me, that's, tell, that's telling the Ryan Cruises of the world, like, oh, sweet. Like it's going to be shooting gallery. So anyway, I just wanted to rant. Um, it's SEAL team and I have been drinking in the room chat since six thirty. Oh, nice. love you, man. Uh, we'll we'll see you later. All right, cheers. <laughs> Good to hear from you, Chazzy. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be listening to the Jerry Sandusky podcast, but that's all right. Matt from New Jersey, take what's us up, home. brother? Hey, yeah, I, this is the point of the evening where I leave a comment in your Patreon comment uh, section. And this is just a real-time kind of commenting. I was watching the Biden press conference. Yeah, um, I, I saw that like, it was going on. I have zero interest with it. I'm sitting here talking to you, holding a Heineken, and I have my television on mute with the abs and Oilers. And I've, uh, I've got a Budweiser. Finding, finding Bra- Celtics. Hearing, hearing from Brandon is the, the bottom of the barrel thing that I'm interested in. I saw... I saw a few tweets on it. He's basically just banned everything. And I yep. just put, I put very one very simple tweet up that said, the answer to everything he is proposing is no. You have a 39% approval rating. Please get fucked. That's it. This that's, is, all, yep. that's all you have to do. Nobody has to get mad. We don't have to have a huge constitutional argument here. The answer is no. And you say, have a good day. And this is a two-parter, and the first part's real quick. I think the Republicans, because it, it sounds like from the speech, he's basically using this as a, a way to get, get out the vote. So he, his last comment was like, you know, if the Republicans don't work with us, you need to go out and vote and use your vote to express your voice. Um, so this Yeah, is Obama, just like, Obama tried that one, and that didn't work for him either. It's, it's cynical as all hell, right? And I totally agree. Like, the Republicans should just say, politely you know what we disagree with what you're proposing and we'll just see you after the midterms and not even debate anymore and not get on tv and just don't make the suburban moms angry at you like they were at trump and just go on with your life the second part the purpose what i was going to call oh reason i was calling in is i had a very um harsh reaction to the canadian prime minister this week um i'm not this crazy gun person, but I do believe in our second amendment. And I know they have their own constitution, which does nothing uh, about guns. But do you believe that, do you feel that Canada, because reverse in the handmaid's tale book, United States was the country that flipped on its citizens and everyone fled to Canada. How far away is Canada just going completely off the fucking deep end? Cause Trudeau does not have, uh, does not have term limits. Um, you know what? I, I'm tired of people bitching to me about Cam- Canada. I have been advocating for armed invasion for about the last six years. <laughs> and now, I, we're, mean, I mean, now we're at a point to where the citizenry isn't going to have guns. So it's, 
it's the easiest time to do this. We unfortunately, our last president was crazy enough to do it. and He didn't do it. And now we have one that isn't going to do it. Um, and so maybe if maybe if Trump gets elected again, maybe that's when we take Canada. I thought that that's why we were supposed to take Greenland. Um, but any anyone who comes to me bitching now, I'm I'm kind of like you could have stopped Trudeau, you know, when when he was just you know a little baby. You know, we could have gone back in time and killed baby Justin Trudeau. So it just depends on if you had the power, would you have done that? Um, so I, I look at now and I shrug. I'm like, you know what? If we if we lose the northern states, if we lose Wisconsin and Montana and even the tip of Idaho or Alaska is all by itself up there, then, you know, I, I'm one of the people who warned you, so don't come crying to me. Yeah, and I know you've been banging that this is, this is part of your beat, but, like, the Canadian thing is pretty crazy. Like, everything that they've done, the restrictions, and this guy kind of, like, he meets the sinister, like, politician in a movie, movie or TV show that, like, looks like Joe Rogan said a couple weeks ago, he's like, I thought Trudeau just like said the right things. And he was just one of those awkward politicians, but he's like, this guy is fucking sinister. He literally wants to take over Canada. And I, I put him right in there with, with president Xi in China. I really do. Minus the concentration camps. Um, well, we don't know that Canada doesn't have concentration camps. Let's not get too crazy. I mean, we didn't discover Hitler's concentration camps until almost the end of the war. So um, there's a lot of empty space to cover with Canada. So, I mean, you could have those in parts where we don't have surveillance drones. So that, let's, that let's not write those concentration camps off completely. And let's not forget that's all basically Calgary is. It's just one giant concentration camp. Um yeah, I mean, with he the disarming the citizen thing is he's halting sales of firearms, and of course he was asked today about he still isn't going to lift COVID restrictions because he said variants are going to come back. And the thing with Trudeau is, you know, for being Castro's son, he's he's pretty you know harmless as far as I'm concerned. But it's how many liberals in this country agree with Trudeau, and how many of them would like to see the things that he's enacting done here if they could have it. Um, and you know, you're talking about the whole Northeastern corridor would love, they would love to have the policies that Justin Trudeau is implementing and, you know, parts of probably California, Oregon, and Washington as well. So it's not so much Trudeau that frightens me. I, I think we could overthrow him faster than we could overthrow Baltimore. Um, but, uh, it's how many of the elite smart sets in this country, you know, love Trudeau and, and think that he's right, uh, to do the things that he's doing. Um, so, yeah, uh, like I said, I mean, we could, if we could strategically strike Toronto and Ottawa, get rid of them. There goes your infrastructure right off the bat. Um, Vancouver would, would move on Seattle. Who gives a shit at that point? Seattle is, you know, a, a homeless camp at this point. They can have Seattle. Um, but basically all we would need to do is occupy Quebec at this point and uh, take take the general Connor McDavid hostage, and the war would be over. Yeah, and like from a sports, like what does Canada bring to the table? Like the professional sports. I know obviously hockey is huge, and like you know it, it, they have a lot of great teams up there. But like, do they still like NBA? They suck. MLB they suck. They don't have professional football. Um, I like oysters. I'm a New Englander. Like the PEI oysters, kind of blow. Like what? Yeah. What do they contribute to society? No, nothing, and that's what I've been saying. It's yeah. it's easy. We should just take. We should just put the Stanley Cup on the National Mall with like 
arm troops around it and just go, come and get it, eh? And just see what happens. I mean, what 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 are they going to do? They're not going to do anything. Um, I, I do not. I will not offer quarter to the traitor Austin Matthews. He should be tried <laughs> and hung um, under treason laws. I stand oh, by that. Um, but again, I mean, I've been on this. I've been on this threat for a while, and people are like, "Oh, ha ha!" And I'm like, "Well, now look what's happening. You have an autocracy happening right above our our, our northern border, and that's the problem with Trump. He was screaming, "Build the wall, build the wall!" when he should have been screaming about that on the Canadian border, and not the border that is now importing hundreds of thousands of future GOP voters. Yeah, I think I, I, I think we kind of nailed it, and um, I'm right there with you. When you start your little uh, militia army, I'll be uh, I'll be lined up ready to fight. Oh, I'm not yeah. starting one. You can just go join DeSantis's Southern Army. <laughs> That's why I'm voting for him. Yeah, I might, I might just, right, man, com- talk to you I just might run comms for that militia. You know, do some graphic design stuff. Maybe design the uniforms, but that's that's as much as I'm going. Just have uh, some pictures of him, like, throwing spears over the border. Yeah, I'm just, I'm too old to fight. I'm basically now just John Connor (laughs) with the binoculars at the beginning of the first Terminator. That's pretty much just my role. Canada has produced some pretty funny, like, decent, like, comedians and and actors. So I think that's one thing that we should, with Jim Carrey, we should, we should send him back in a fucking rocket. Um, But they did produce, like, Michael J. Fox uh, and Mike Myers, which I think is, he's a pretty funny dude, so. Yeah, but they also produce Justin Bieber, who cancels out any meaningful contributions uh, that com- that comedians have made from Canada. So there we go. I, I, don't, edit, edit I, don't, I don't give them credit. <laughs> I don't give them, you know, gene pool credit. I'm sorry. All right, dude. I'll talk to you. Thanks, Matt. Um, that's going to wrap it up for uh, episode 20. Open topic. A lot of good topics. Um, ran a little bit long, but we always kind of do that. So uh, make sure that you guys also tune back. This ep- these episodes are published. So if you want to play it for your family or uh, whoever the guy was whose girlfriend was coming over, hey, hey, hey um, you guys are free to also do that as well and, and share them and spread them out uh, so we can show how many fun listeners I'm getting. Uh, especially I like to brag to Glenn Greenwald that my audience is as big as his. So uh, I will have a, a podcast over on Patreon tomorrow. Um, you're feel free to leave comments, questions over on there as well. Um, usually I'll do a wrap up about kind of things we talk about after I ingest some of this stuff. So again, thank you all for your stories. Thanks all for open topic. Uh, we don't do this kind of thing often, but like I said, sometimes it's just fun and casual. And, uh, like I said, I will see you tomorrow and then also Saturday as well over on Patreon. You can also get me on Twitter at red Steez, and I'll probably look at coming back Monday and, uh, doing a, a new call in on Monday. So be sure to uh, tune in for that. Um, when I, when I send out that email. So great. Thanks everyone for coming in. I am Stephen L. Miller. This is versus media live episode 20 on Colin open topic. VML goes maverick. Uh, I'm not so sure how I feel about VML. This kind of feel like Carson Daly doing MTV shit now, but I don't know that may stick. Uh, anyway, thanks everyone. Go avalanche. <laughs>